dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, And in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see you this morning. Open up our hearts that we would would receive the good news of the gospel of the coming King. We want to see you that we might rejoice in who you are, and what you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're working through the meta-narrative, right? We've been in this, this is our seventh week now, so we're getting along nicely in our series called The Meta-Narrative and discussing the scope of redemptive history, the, the narrative of what this book is telling us, coming to us in four acts, right? So I say this, Every Sunday, you should be getting this down if you're here, that we have creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We have creation. God starts it all off. He is, he is the author of it all. He has authority of it all. He's independent of, his, of it all. 
He creates everything. God creates everything and calls it good. Indeed, He calls it very good. But we have some conflict then because the world as we see it now, we cannot look around and say, oh, it's good, something's happened. Well, after we have the first act of creation, we have the next moment, the next act of the fall where Adam and Eve, God's creation, rebels against their Creator and humanity is plunged into sin and death. That's my little fan over there. (laughs) Humanity is plunged into sin and death. The world becomes broken. We All the horizontal problems that you see in the world around you, be it through natural evil, be it through moral evil, is a result of the fall. But even more dire and more problematic is that even though as bad as these horizontal problems are, the vertical problem has now come in that mankind is cut off from their Creator. In their rebellion, all men are now born dead in trespasses and sins and are cut off from God. We are in and under the just judgment and by, and as Ephesians 2 tells us, we are by nature children of wrath. So not only is there a horizontal problem, the horizontal fallout from the fall, there's vertical fallout from the fall in that we are cut off from God. This is what happens in the fall. So this is why it's so important the story doesn't end there. The story could have ended there. God could have said, this creation has rebelled against me. I'm going to wipe them all out. And God would have been just and could have been charged with no wrongdoing for for doing that. But He doesn't. We we have now, we are in the act of redemption. In the storyline, creation, fall, redemption. And that's what this book is communicating to us. Um, One of the the sub-points that I'm trying to communicate is, is how we are to read this book. This book sometimes is read like it's a gathering of, of, of um, Scripture McNuggets. That you go and you just gotta, you're going to open it up and you're looking for a McNugget of something good. And so you, you, you find an isolated passage, you, you flip through there, you're looking for one good verse or a few good words, you're trying to find a Scripture McNugget. And our, our social media day-to-day really has just heightened that with Twitter. and You can only have 140 characters or whatever. And so... The people, we, we like to grab these nuggets. And so things like Jeremiah 29, 11 and verses like that, Romans 8, 28, they become scripture nuggets. And so we're just looking for, like this is a, a, a book of wise words. And, and so you, there's, the problem with that becomes there are a lot of other words besides the ones you would find printed on a coffee cup or on a Facebook post. There's a lot of other content in here. What is this book about? This book is about is telling us who God is and what God has done and what God is going to do. This is a this is a book about God. It's not primarily a book about you. We are in here and this book is for us, but it's primarily a book about God. It's to help us see who God is. This is authoritative truth. The Holy Spirit Chosen men were, were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things down to show us who God is and what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is going to do. So after this fall, we get into redemption. What's this storyline going on here? Not looking for McNuggets. We're looking for what is God, who is God, and what is God doing. 
Everything from the fall forward, we started with Genesis 3.15, right? The proto-euangelion, the first gospel. That's Greek, forgive me, for that proto-euangelion. First gospel is proclaimed in the curse of the serpent where it says that the seed of the woman, that the, the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will bruise the serpent's head. He's going to give the serpent a death blow while being bruised in his heel. And from this moment on, in redemption, we are looking and looking and looking. Where is this one coming? When is he coming? Where is he? We are looking and looking and looking for him. And there's two ways we do this. We do this by following the bloodline of the descendant of Eve and also in type and shadow. We've done type and shadow of like Noah and the ark. That this is a shadow of judgment that is coming, but there is an ark through which the people of God will be rescued, will be saved. We've also traced the bloodline starting with Abraham, right? Abraham gets this promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Abraham gets this promise. He's going to become this father of the faith, this patriarch through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We looked at Moses. Was that just last week? Yeah, we looked at Moses. Who is this deliverer? He takes the people of God out of slavery and delivers them into their promised land. Type and shadow of what Jesus is going to do. Take a people out of slavery in bondage to sin and death. And he's going to deliver them into the promised land. So from there, we, we're going to jump over a lot from Exodus all the way to 2 Samuel and look at the role of David in this bloodline, this line of King David. Now, when I say King David, I could almost just take a poll and say, what is the story that comes to your head first when you think of King David? Does anyone want to dare a guess? The first story you think of is David and Goliath. All right, okay, that's, it's okay. You can answer. The first thing you think of is David and Goliath. I mean, it's a huge story. Everyone knows the story of David and Goliath. If all you like is Final Four basketball, you know the story of David and Goliath because it, it never fails. And I, I'm not a big sports guy. I, I like them fine, but I can't follow them. I'm not smart enough to follow them. But it's too much stuff to remember. <laughs> but everyone who watches Final Four always is talking about the David and Goliath. You know, the, and it's the underdog story, right? It's the one who shouldn't win against this big giant of a person, a giant of a team, and then hopefully they overthrow. And so even people who are only interested in college basketball know the reference of David and Goliath. It's an important story, but I want to say it's not the biggest moment in the life of David. It's not the biggest moment in the life of David. And in fact, the story of David and Goliath really is just a pointer to Christ. Sometimes people preach through, we're not going to spend much time on David and Goliath because there's something more important about King David. Lots of times they preach on David and they say the, 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 the reference or the inference to the, the, what you're supposed to get out of the idea of David and Goliath is that somehow you are now supposed to look at David as a model. And so now you have you and identify your Goliath, find your five stones, 
and then go and run towards your Goliath, and you are going to be David in this scenario who's going to defeat your Goliath. You've probably all heard sermons like that. And who is the center that takes the story of David and Goliath and it makes who the center of the story? It makes you the center of the story. It makes me the hero of my life. I've got these Goliaths. I find my five stones and I defeat my Goliath. No, you're not the hero of this story. Jesus is the hero of the story. David is a type of Christ. The Goliath that is killing the people of God is death itself. Jesus is the, is the revelation that we see in da- the story of David and Goliath. Jesus shows up and he defeats Goliath. He defeats the, the, the enemy of the people of God for their ultimate rescue. David and Goliath, this whole book, is to point us not to ourselves, but to Jesus. We need not to strengthen ourselves up for our own rescue. We need to trust in the one who has already rescued. We trust in the one who's already defeated Goliath. So Christ is the hero of the story, not you. I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings this morning. If that steps on some toes, I'm okay with that. Because I don't know how many memes, if you know what a meme is, but I don't know how many things you see on Facebook, social media, or how many positive affirmations that are out there about being the hero of your own story. If it's, if it's going to be, it's up to me. What a tragic, tragic and pointless and, and fruitless and, and, and ultimately um, damning way to live. If it's up to you, you're in trouble. If it's up to me, I'm in trouble. And anyone who has much self-reflection knows that. It's not up to me. The hero is not you. The hero is Christ. So we want to focus then, even though I spent some time already outside of this text, on what this text says about the life of David. I'm going to argue this is one of the most important texts in the life of David. It's a critically, it's a pivotal promise, not just for David, but for all of the future of God, of all of God's people, for the future of all of God's people. Back in Genesis 49, Jacob and his 12 sons have moved down to Egypt, right? Joseph has led them all down there. There's a famine in the land, so they all escape to Egypt. And Jacob has these 12 sons, right? And at the end of his life, he is blessing each one of these sons. And in Genesis 49, an important promise is made to the heir named Judah. Genesis 49, just read it real quick. Genesis 49 Verse 8, Judah, this is one of the sons of Jacob, who is also Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Some, something peculiar is going on here with Judah. This one son, they're, they're looking for the scepter will not pass from the line of Judah. So right there, at the end of the book of Genesis, we start tracing this bloodline. 
We're looking again for the coming one. They're looking for the coming one. In our scope of redemption, we're in Old Testament redemption. It's constantly looking, looking, looking. The coming one is coming. Where is he? And we know we have another clue here that this scepter is not going to depart from Judah. This coming one, the offspring, the, the, the seed of Abraham through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's once more going to come not only from, from, uh, from the woman and from Abraham, but from the line of Judah. This is pointing directly to King David. So, uh, this is where we have that, that the scepter will not pass from Judah. And we trace the line of Judah. It quickly leads to King David. The book of Ruth. You guys ever read the book of Ruth in the Old Testament? It's pretty. It's only four short chapters. It's a great book. I go up, take it home and read it. Won't take you. I won't take you the rest of Sunday to read it. But it's a great book. But the whole point of the book of Ruth is talking about the bloodline of King David. That's the, that's one of the main themes beyond the providence and the steadfast love of God is proving how David descends from Judah from this specific line. And at the end of the book of Ruth, I, I, we, we get the line of, it's right after Judges. Joshua Judges Ruth, right? Right at the end of the book of Ruth, we have this. The story, I don't have time for the whole story, but Boaz marries this girl, uh, Ruth. and he, he t- So Boaz takes Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi, who is the mother-in-law of Ruth, took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Verse 18 in the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez is the son of Judah. Okay, so we got, here's our genealogy. These are the generations of Perez, son of Judah. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nation. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. They're really honing into the book of Ruth, the, the, the coming one, this bloodline, this king that is coming. And then David shows up. One is yet coming. Do you get the expectation that's building in the Old Testament? The expectation of this coming one. Someone's coming. Someone's coming, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, the offspring, the seed of Abraham. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Here in 2 Samuel 7, we see the promise again. It's led us all the way to David, right? This is leading us up to David. And now we get moving on from David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, this is through the prophet Nathan, God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Here we are with this looking again. Someone's coming. There's an offspring coming 
after King David. And this offspring is something unique. He shall build, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. In some ways, this is pointing to Solomon, right? Who is David's son. Solomon does build the first temple, but Solomon does not rule forever. In fact, we know because Solomon is not ruling right now. This is pointing forward. We're looking, we're looking, looking. When is this king coming? Isaiah chapter 9 picks up on this. Isaiah prophesying picks up on this coming offspring. You might recognize this when we start reading it. This is Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's not just a Christmas text. That's a text about the coming King. It's a text about the coming one we've been looking for since Genesis 3.15. This coming one is going to come not only from Abraham and from Judah. He's going to come from the line of David. And he's going to have a throne that's going to rule forever. Looking, looking, and looking, and looking for this king to show up. Of peace there will be no end. Justice and righteousness forevermore. The great king is coming. And next week, We're going to see the king in his glory. We're going to get to it. We're all along here, and this is is redemption, Old Testament. Looking forward, looking forward, looking forward. All of this pointing to Jesus, the coming king. Do you know Jesus as king? Do you know Jesus as king? It's, um, you know, it's popular today, um, to kind of we we make Jesus we we were Jesus is popular with the when they, we make him kind of the way we want him to be. Jesus is popular with people when he's a Jesus of their own making. So some people like Jesus meek and mild, and we just think oh, he's teddy bear Jesus. Some people like a grandfatherly Jesus that you know he's he's really old. He's been around a long time, and so he just he just is glad to see you. It's nice when you show up. He just appreciates a phone call. He's just kind of, you know, he's just glad to have you around. People are comfortable with Jesus when, they, when he is the Jesus they make him out to be. Therapeutic Jesus. Nice Jesus. Mild Jesus. Hold me Jesus. There's actually a song out called Hold Me Jesus. That they have this idea that they make Jesus into who they think they need him to be. And what I want to push for is what we need to see is not a Jesus how we think we need Him to be, but to see Jesus for who He really is. He is the coming King. Jesus is the coming King. And this is very important. In closing, three things that a King... Three, I mean, I just as I try to think on this myself this week, and what does it mean that we serve not just therapeutic Jesus or help me feel better about myself Jesus or 
fix my life problems, Jesus. What does it mean that we have King Jesus? What does it matter that I have King Jesus, that I know Jesus as he really is, King Jesus? Three things that a king has that makes a difference. A king, first of all, a king has a country. A king has a homeland. A king has a place that is his. And when we serve King Jesus, there is a homeland, and it is not this world. It is not here. C.S. Lewis says that if we find in ourselves a desire nothing in this world satisfies, it is likely that we were made for another world. The king has a country. The king has a place where his people belong. There is a place where Christ's followers will feel finally at home and at rest and completely in place. A king has a country. Ever feel out of place in this world? Ever feel like something's not right? Ever feel like I, I wish things were different? I wish the world wasn't wired the way that it was? All those who are Christ have a country that is not of this world. The king has a country. The king has a place where where those who are his are gathered to it will be finally at home. It means we put our hope not in this world, but in the world to come. We put our hope not here, not in this country, but in our king's country. The king has a country. Secondly, the king has citizens. Those who are in Christ are ambassadors of the sovereign king of the universe. This is not to give us arrogance or some sort of boasting. We know it's only by his grace that we are his. But it is to give us bold, confident hope. Our king will not disappoint those who are his. A king has citizens. And when your king is a sovereign, it's good to be one of his citizens. You want to be a citizen of the king. You want to be a citizen of the one who is in charge of everything. Because this king is omnipotent and he will not fail those who are his. Is that good news for anybody this morning? This king has citizens. And when you're his citizen, when you are his, he does not fail his own. We live with governments that fail left and right. No offense. <laughs> but you know, I mean, and it's not—it's not here. It's not locally. It's not—it's globally. Governments are failing their people left and right because we live in a fallen planet. We have a king who never fails, and all of those who are citizens with this king will never be disappointed. A king has a country. A king has citizens. A king has a campaign. A king. Three C's there. Isn't that fancy? A king has a country. A king has citizens. A king has a campaign. The first campaign of this king is not to wear a a crown of authority, but it is to wear a crown of thorns. The first job of this king, his first campaign, is not to show up and, and, and wipe out all of the evildoers. His first campaign is to show up and to suffer for evildoers, to suffer in their place to take the wrath that they deserve, dying on a cross, bearing the justice that His people deserve. All of us deserving to be wiped off the face of the planet 
because of the wrath of God against sinners. The king shows up and he has a campaign. And his campaign, first of all, is to wear not a crown of gold and of jewels and of authority, but a crown of service and a crown of thorns, suffering for his people. This is the coming king. This is what Jesus does. The justice, when he talks about his justice will no end, the first movement of his justice is bearing the justice that his people deserve upon himself so that God could be proved to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. And the second movement of his campaign is then to empower his citizens with the Holy Spirit for the proclamation of this good news to the ends of the earth. King Jesus has a country. He has citizens he does not fail. He has a campaign to bleed and die for his people and to rescue them. Next week, we will look at the king in all of his glory. But for now, we can sit with the Old Testament writers and believers in a a real close familiarity. This king has come. This king has lived the righteous life, died the death we deserve. He has resurrected. He has ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And we wait for the coming of this king. There's another coming, coming. We wait for this king who when he comes this time will bring justice, will bring righteousness and his rule will never end. May the king find us in penitent faith, repenting of our sins, trusting in Him for the forgiveness of our sins and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth until He comes. The King is coming. He has a country. He welcomes in citizens. He welcomes in citizens and He has a campaign to die for His people and to empower them for the proclamation of this good news. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes, give me eyes to see this King. When this world disappoints, when this life disappoints, it's, it, it's not a shock to citizens of a different country. This is not our home. This is not the world as it should be. There is a country. There is a place where that, that is coming, where the citizens of that country will be at home. And will be at peace where justice and righteousness will rule forever. 